Well, I got to tell you, patriotism is alive and well. We were, uh, last night, my wife and I and the kids all walked over to watch the New Albany fireworks, which I was really quite impressed with. And uh, we got to see some of the Velocity people there and college people there, and we got to sit with the Snowdens and ooh and ah with everybody else. And as the fireworks started, you know, you, all around us, you hear the kids going ooh and the adults going ooh and ah, and it's really cool. And then all of a sudden there's this great big boom of this uh, beautiful yellow gold and dark blue and a four-year-old and a seven-year-old about off to our right goes, Ooh, Michigan colors, I hate that one. <laughs> Man, I don't know. We've been here about a year, and I don't know what you guys do. You know, is this like, is this like the Buckeye version of the Hitler Youth Program, or, or, or what is, what's going on here? <laughs> it, was, it was quite, quite hilarious. Um, you know, we celebrate 234 years as a, as a, as a country today. Yeah. And that's... Uh, that may seem like a really long time. When we look in the course of history, we look at places like Egypt and China and Japan and Rome and realize that we're still pretty young. We've still got a ways to go, but God has done amazing things through America. I mean, think of it this way. Thomas Jefferson, one of the uh, authors of the Declaration of Independence, probably the primary one from what we understand, uh, when he died, Abraham Lincoln was 17 years old. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Woodrow Wilson was eight. When Woodrow Wilson was, was, died, Ronald Reagan was 12 years old. And when Ronald Reagan died, my son was 11, already torturing my youngest son. Just about four and just a few years, lifetime spans, take us all the way back to the founding of our country. And in that time, some amazing things have happened. We've become arguably the greatest nation on the face of the planet today, giving away the most dollars of any nation in the world in terms of charity. Over the course of our history, we have sent out more missionaries than any other country in the world who have had a great impact where Christianity has grown all over the world. Two movements started in the United States among the Christian evangelical world that now form over one billion Christians around the world, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. We could probably go on and on and on. We could talk about the wealth. We could talk about the prosperity. We could talk about the advancements in health and, and how our country is such an impetus in helping AIDS and all sorts of stuff all over the world that that God has done through this great nation and through the freedoms and the liberties that we have. And if we really look at it honestly, while not all of the founding fathers had a Christian faith, that's very clear. Many of them did, and even the ones who didn't still believed that there was a divine providence, that there was a supreme being who was behind the values that made this nation. Even near the end of the declaration, it reads this. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. These men who drafted the Declaration of Independence believed with a clear conscience that God was behind creating a country that was more free, had greater values, and it was worth the cost 
And they were able to say at the end of the declaration, with a clear conscience, we appeal to the great God of the universe to show whether we really are acting honestly before him. On July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress met in the Pennsylvania State House, now called the Independence Hall, and they approved and voted for the Declaration of Independence. Thirteen colonies were represented there. And uh, I'm going to show you a video clip from a movie that reenacts that the best we could probably guess what happened from all people's journals. And we're going to pick it up at a scene where they're about, they've been doing the roll call, basically saying, who's going to approve this? And they've been going through the states. And to save time, I didn't do all 13 of them because they are dramatic pauses and it would take forever. So we're going to pick up at about the 11th one and watch the rest of the clip. Yes, South Carolina. South Carolina votes yes. Georgia. Georgia votes yes. The vote stands. 12 for independence, none against, with one abstention. The resolution carries. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain un... Is that word there? Unalienable. With certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is in the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new governments. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Bless you. God save our American states. God save our American states.
Isn't it interesting? I don't know how you've always pictured that scene. But the greatest declarations of our life, you know, we pass them or we resolve to do them. And sometimes we would picture the fact that maybe we would cheer. But the greatest declarations of our life are often met with a solemnness, with a quietness, with a pondering of the sacrifice that it's going to take to achieve this. There's amazing power in the willingness to band together in sacrifice and to band together around the power of compelling godly values. The Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These aren't truths that are just made up, preferential, that aren't applying to all, that aren't hard, that are hard to see, that we've had the mind to, to get to. These are self-evident. That they are endowed by their Creator. Mankind is endowed by the Creator. These are God-ordained values with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life. Liberty, the pursuit of happiness, endowed by our Creator. These are the declarations. These are the values that made this nation great. And they're the values that these mostly godly men believed biblically to be true as things that could be endowed on all of us, that God intended these to be part of our lives. Now, I've been at Quest for one year now. We landed here last year on July 8th. And this last year has been about, for me, an intentional process of, of making some declarations about what church is. Now, I didn't know you, so a lot of these are probably, a lot of the declarations, a lot of the things we've talked about have just been reminders about what we, what we already know, what we already believe. And maybe some of them have been a little different. I don't know. But it's been a systematic thing this last year through the various series of of making declarations of how we know God, how we live this faith to love others, and how God has called us to make a difference. An attempt really, in one sense, to discover for us from a biblical perspective as Christians the true meaning of what life means, what liberty really means, and what the pursuit of happiness and the realization of God's joy in life really means. Because you know what? For most of us, we struggle finding that on a consistent basis. We've probably been to church after church and some of us wonder why bother with church and some of us are, are questioning about maybe, well, what's our faith and how does it apply in certain areas and we go through ups and downs. And, and, but all throughout this year, there's been one common theme through all the series that the declaration of what it takes to be a follower of Christ to find meaning in church, to find meaning in our own relationship with Christ, to find His grace and His power is all about we and not me. As our Constitution later said, it's we the people. The founding values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are really under siege both in America and in the church. And a lot of times we don't really understand it, but it's because all of a sudden everything is shifted from we to me. 
That's the plague of life. It's the plague of life all throughout the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in all the stories of the Bible where God called a people to be a blessing and it all of a sudden becomes about me. And it becomes about me being right, me understanding how to measure up, me understanding how to live life and how to be happy and how to have my needs met. And that's so often what our faith journey ends up being. And, and we see it not just in our faith journey, but we see it in our marriages where we start asking questions like, they don't meet my needs. When are they going to care about me? We even see it in the way we think about children, which we would think in our society and in all of our lives as the most unselfish pursuit. But if we really look honestly, don't most of us, even as parents, have a little bit of selfish endeavor even in the why we have kids or, or what we want from our kids? You know, we can go back to the classic dads living, through the, living their dreams through their kids and wanting them to be like they want them to be. But, but it goes even deeper than that. You know, maybe this is maybe you've struggled having kids, and there's so much pain, and I that pain is so real because it's a God-given desire. So I don't want to discount that, but but I've watched people who have who have been unmarried late into their marrying years or their childbearing years or struggled to have kids, where all of a sudden that pain, that that desire to have a kid, overtakes their entire life. It all becomes about my need to have this and it, and it dictates the, the mood, it dictates the depression, it dictates the feelings about self and the worth about self. Or, or I can remember on a, on a slightly more humorous note, uh, dating a girl once in college who on the first date we're sitting there over dinner and she looks across the table and says to me, well, I love kids, I've always wanted to have kids, but I've always hated men, but I finally decided I have to date men if I want to have kids. She had a lot of first dates. <laughs> but I even heard somebody tell me this one time about children. They, they, we were having a conversation about, you know, what's the ideal size of family and how many kids should we have? And, and this person told me that, that they always wanted to have a big family. And I said, why? And they said, well, I want to have at least three. And I said, well, why three? Why not two? Why not four? Why, you know? And they said, I want three because if one dies, there's still two to take care of me when I'm old. And so often, those, some of those examples seem maybe raw and real to some of us. And please, I, I don't, I don't want to, the pain is real. I don't want to say the pain's not real. And some of those seem ridiculous and silly to us, but it's so easy for all of life, our faith, our marriage, our work, our friendships, our goals in life to become about me instead of we. And when it becomes about me, we end up getting caught in the trap that all dead religion has. Dead religion is about us measuring up, us knowing enough, us knowing the rules and living up to them and feeling approved and, and being acceptable and striving for that. And Paul says this about that. He says now about food sacrifice idols, and he's discussing a whole debate and an argument in the church about food sacrifice idols. But we could insert whatever argument we've ever had about faith or about church in this, in this statement. And, and then he says, we know that we all possess knowledge. We're all pursuing the truth. We all have knowledge. But then he goes to say that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But so often we've been taught that following Christ, 
is about the right acquisition of knowledge and the right acquisition of moral character to prove that we're okay, to live a clean life. And we end up getting into arguments and we end up having problems in our own faith and our own church and our and in our life period because right becomes more important than love. But that's not what Jesus did. The Bible says in John 1, and then Paul talks about it in a number of places, but he uses phrases like, to the praise of His glorious grace, that, that, it's, that it's God sending Jesus, and it's His grace that is His greatest glory. It's His love for us. It's the idea that He would offer relationship to us even in the midst of our differences. That is the greatest glory. And God Himself prioritized in His relationship with us love above knowledge. Now, it's not that we don't pursue knowledge. We pursue knowledge. We pursue truth. But it's always got to be grace first. It's always got to be relationship above differences, which is one of the values that we've stated for our church. Because how do you define love? When you think about love, how do you define it? Some of us define it as, as being nice. And so our Christian faith becomes just all about being nice, about being kind, and that's all it is. Some of us define uh, love by peacemaking, just keeping the peace, whatever the cost. Some of us define love probably a little bit more than the knowledge puffs up way at times as tough love, telling people, convincing people what the truth is. That's our job. but it's got to be grace first. That's what Jesus came to demonstrate. Even in marriage, think about it. Marriage is this beautiful relationship. And I think that the main purpose of marriage, that one of the main reasons God created marriage for us and what he uses it in our lives for is for us to learn this grace because it's the one relationship that's hardest to get out of. It's the one relationship where we tend to stay together for our whole life. There was actually a marriage study, and I read it back in the late 80s, and so forgive me if I'm off by a slight detail here, but it's going to be in the ballpark, where they did a huge study of marriages that were really satisfied. And they, they came up with different stages of marriage, and they discovered exit points that typically marriages come up against, and, and they have exit points. And it's an interesting study because they found out that people who get divorced once and twice and three times, they tend to leave at the same exit point in a marriage. But the last stage of marriage, which is the stage that if you see somebody at that stage of marriage, you go, I want to be like that. It's what we all dream about. It's the, it's the satisfaction and the love and the, and the pleasure and the humor and the fun that a marriage has. That last stage of marriage was defined most by the ability of the couple to give grace to one another. Now it's, you know, we, we talk a lot about in marriage of how we need to, we need to overlook people, our partner's issues and how we need, to, we need to give grace and learn to put up with their differences and still be kind. But you know what happens in most of our marriages? What that usually looks like is, is it means that we really can't stand this person in this way, so we go play golf a little bit more or we go out with our girlfriends a little bit more. And actually, we start to avoid and we start to put walls up to protect us from those things while we still try to be loving in the other areas. But the kind of grace God wants us to have in our marriage is that we can actually get to the point where we can celebrate even those things that annoy us. 
We can tease about them. We can love them through it. And it, it doesn't cause us to turn away, but we continually turn towards them. And, and that's really the picture of grace and even the picture of what God wants in our friendships and in our church, which are so much easier to leave, our, our jobs, which are so much easier to leave. But God wants us to learn the same principle there, that it's, that it's more important to be loving. It's more important to be gracious. It's more important to stay most of the time that it is to leave, to learn to give grace. It's more important to love than it is to be right. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we can't do love from a me aspect. We will never do love if our life is about me. It has to be about we. Following Christ is about glorifying His grace and staying in relationship, offering relationship even when we have differences. Religion is about needing to be right and arguing and and leaving and demanding that we agree on something or I'm going to go to a different church or I'm going to go to a different friendship. Moving on a little bit, you know, it's easy even in life to twist meanings. We look at the Declaration of Independence this idea of liberty, this idea of freedom has become today something that we look at and it's all about individual freedom. It's all about freedom from constraints. It's all about, it's all about the ability to do what we want when we want. But even in the original author's intent, freedom, and even in the biblical intent, freedom, there is no such thing as being completely free to do whatever we want. Freedom is the ability to do and be what God created us to be. Life, freedom, is only found in a committed relationship. It's not found by individualism. It's not found by doing what we want. Freedom that is about me is called sin. It's called selfishness. It's called laziness. It's called hedonism. It's called anarchy. It's called my rights. But Paul actually talks about this issue in the Bible. And he basically gives us two options. We have two options for our life, both of which he describes as slavery. It's that serious. There is no complete independence. It's, we have no complete rights. I mean, a slave has no rights. They do what their master says. In Romans 6.16, he gives us the two options. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. We're either slaves of Christ or we're slaves of sin. Liberty, the blessings of liberty. It's about us because God calls us into a relationship of dependence with Him. So at the very least, it's a we between He and I. But even beyond that, God calls us. He doesn't call us to follow Him alone. He calls us into a body. He calls us into a family. All of life, all of liberty, all of freedom can only be found in the context of we and not me. 1 Corinthians 12 says this. It says, But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. 
And he goes on to say this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. He says that we as followers of Christ, in order to understand even our faith with him, in order to even understand this life, we are so connected and that life is all about we, about suffering with each other, about caring for each other in the down times and about celebrating with each other in the up times. We're connected. We're so connected. It's actually part of God's original design. In Genesis, the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then he shows him all the animals, lets him name all the animals. And Adam says this. He says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Then the Lord God made a woman. And later he said, multiply. Because life and liberty and happiness are found in we, not me. The only way Adam, any of us, can ever find satisfaction in life is in being intimately connected in the kind of a relationship where we receive and give God's grace. Even today, the pursuit of pleasure is a misunderstood. Pleasure becomes all about our needs and our desires, our desire to escape, our desire to have fun, our desire to, to play and have toys, and our desire to do the job we want to do and not do the jobs we don't want to do. And it's gotten so twisted that I don't know how many of you have ever done this, but, but I've walked into homes where people were on food stamps and not, able to, and not able to even feed themselves on that, and they weren't able to provide their kids with clothes, and they weren't able to do anything. They were poor, and yet they would demand the right that it was okay for them to have the 37-inch TV and the Xbox and the cable package because that was more important. It's entertainment pleasure is so out of whack and so me-focused in our culture. But Thomas Jefferson, even, even in writing about the pursuit of pleasure, it didn't mean any of that to him. In his notes about what that actually meant, pursuit of pleasure was all about civic virtue and civic duty. This idea that happiness is a me thing wasn't even present in his idea of using the words pursuit of happiness. But in regard to our faith, we, we make our faith a personal, private thing. We, we, we focus on our faith as meetings, and we focus on our faith as bringing our kids to a place so they get moral virtues, and we focus it on knowledge or, or just the fact that we're supposed to be here. And you know what? We've been taught that. The church has taught us. The church is about you coming and hearing a guy who can say something that might inspire you once in a while and give you a moral compass and help you experience God and that we can have a worship leader and a band that helps us experience God's presence. But, but if we're going to ever have the moral virtue, the moral connection to God, the relationship is what we've talked about this last year. We have to be what we talked about earlier in the year in a message, self-feeding people. If we come and think our faith as only a Sunday and maybe a small group, then we're going to look like this in our, in our life. And we, we had a Gettysburg clip a couple, years, a couple weeks ago that showed us what spiritual battle looks like and, and really what the woundedness of our culture looks like. But this is really a picture of maybe even many of us. I don't know. Because we think that eating, feeding, 
our relationship with God, nourishing our relationship with God once a week or, or twice a week is good enough. And all that leads to is, is this. But then, but then we wonder why faith and why church is not meaningful, why, why it doesn't go where we want it to go. And, and we wonder why we can't control our cravings to, that, that get us involved in trouble, where we get involved in pornography or we get involved in all sorts of other sins or we yell at our kids we can't get over it or we, or we just... All those things that drive us, that sin in our life that we want so desperately, each of us knows about that, that in ourselves, and we want, to, we want to get rid of it. But when you're a person like this, when you're famished, that base need, that base drive has to be fulfilled. And it's either going to be fulfilled through learning to feed ourselves and be healthy, or that drive is going to create us to do horrible things, which is what we see all around the world when famine hits. Unless we learn to nourish ourselves, to feed ourselves, to be a person of prayer, to spend time in God's Word, not, not just to gain knowledge, but to hear His voice, to experience Him. Unless we do that on a regular basis, we're just a famished people walking around wondering why we don't like life and why, wondering why faith isn't, isn't what we want it to be. But spiritual health is not just feeding. Thomas Jefferson's words about the pursuit of pleasure, about the pursuit of joy in life also had a connotation of civic duty. Think of this as exercise. Think of about it as our responsibility to the we, not just me. The things that God has called us to do to be a part of the we. We've just finished a, a series on the metaphors of the church. And each one of those metaphors is not about me. It's about we. How can we be the church? How can we experience God's presence and follow Him faithfully? We can only do it if we understand we're a body. And if we're content with who God has made us to be and the fit we have and we, we don't strive for promotion, we don't compete with other people, we just simply be the best version of who we are that we can be and let God work out the details as far as promotion and honor and recognition in life. The kind of self-sacrifice that says, I'm this and I'm okay being this. And if somebody else gets more recognition than I am, it's okay. And learning to... Not just accept that about ourselves, but it's easy. It's easy for us to accept God's view of us. It's hard sometimes for us to accept God's view of others. And instead to become people who not only say, I believe God's created me this way, but be encouraging of others in the way He's created them. Have you ever had the kind of friend or mentor who believed in you? And who just said something into your life that defined who you were and set you free and brought joy to your life? Can we be that to each other? And can we be that to the people in the community? The image of the family, the fact that God has adopted us all into a family. And we all get the inheritance. It's not, it's not brothers fighting each other for who's going to get the most inheritance or sisters fighting over who this heirloom. It's we all together. It's not the, even the inheritance, even the idea of family, the inheritance God has for us is not a me thing. It's a we thing. We get it together. We get to experience it together. Or the image of the army, the fact that God has a noble thing for us to accomplish. 
but we can only do it if we stay focused on mission and are willing to make the sacrifices for that mission along the way. Or even the picture of the bride, which would be easy for us to interpret in a me format. It's really a we. All of us together are the bride. Not alone. We're the bride of Christ. All of us together, God looks at us and sees His beautiful bride. And it's hard to see when, we, when we're struggling with issues between us. It's hard to see that, but God sees that. Can we trust Him that not only He sees that about me, but He sees it about everybody else? Can we trust that God sees that person who offended us or, or that person who let us down or that person who hurt us or that person who failed and disappointed us? Can we trust God that He sees them as His beautiful bride and that He is pursuing them He's loving them. He's jealous for them. He's going to do whatever it takes to make them the beautiful, spotless part of the bride that he is worthy of being honored with. See, again, it's so hard sometimes. It's, 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 it's easy for us to trust God for ourselves. But when other people hurt us, it's hard for us to trust that in other people. And what often happens when life becomes about me, it starts becoming about the right. It starts becoming about the, the justification. And, and we see this pattern in, in, in our own lives, and it's been in my own life too. So I'm not talking to anybody other than myself as well, but I, I just know it's been a part of our life. We have a problem, we have a conflict, and, and we end up going somewhere else and and we end up arguing and trying to prove our rightness and because we can't prove our rightness or because we're frustrated with the other person won't believe our rightness and we can't deal with the differences instead of giving grace we leave and we go find another church and then we complain in that church about how how the previous church hurt us but if we really look at that isn't that complaint about a previous church hurting us really just the fact that we never learned how to give grace and live in the grace that God wanted us to live in? Isn't that really what it's about? I mean, yes, God calls people to leave churches, and, and I'm all for that. I've worked with over 60 church planners, and I'm, I'm all for sending people from our staff, sending people from our church out to other churches when they feel called. But, but when we leave because of pain and we look at another church and we complain because they hurt us, it's really... It's really the fact that we were never able to get to the place of forgiveness and the place where we could extend kind relationship, which is what grace is, in spite of the differences. You see, God's calling us. The declarations for this church are, are things like relationship above differences, prioritizing love over knowledge, prioritizing grace over having to be right and having to have discomfort go away. We, not me. We have to have it to experience the God kind of liberty and happiness. Can you imagine with me for, for a minute some of these declarations that we've made over this past year to be a self-feeding people, to be a a place that talks honestly but prioritizes grace over rightness. That offers a relationship 
even when we're hurt by someone. It offers kindness. A place that is, is safe enough that we can make mistakes. That we can have ideals about who we want to be in our character, in our dreams for what we want our marriages, our work, and our life, and our skills to be. That we can have those ideals and we can fall short but not be judged. Instead, be offered the hand of forgiveness and kindness to pursue those ideals, to not be called a hypocrite just because you have ideals that are greater than you are. Can you imagine a place where we could have dreams that are bigger than us? You individually, me individually, us together. And to realize that God is with us and we may not achieve those dreams all the way. We may fall short, but it's still okay to dream those dreams. You don't have to hide them out of embarrassment. You can talk about them and you can be encouraged to dream the dreams that God's given you. Can you imagine a place where we value grace at that level? Where it's safe enough to be that? We worded it this way, actually, in in looking at some of our values, we reworded a value for Quest as, oops, try again. And it's not that we don't take sin or, or that we take failure seriously. We do take it seriously, but it's more important to be graceful, to be loving, to be kind, than it is to be right, to be perfect. Can you imagine being a part of a place where that's lived out Relationship above differences. Oops, try again. A place where we find great meaning because we serve one another in wonderful ways. We give others undeserving grace when they've ticked us off. We help people discover more fully God's plan for their lives and help them live it out. Where we truly live as friends in the midst of our faith with each other and with people who don't know him. We're friends first. We don't have friendships with people who don't know him to try to get a notch on our gun belt and make him get saved. We are friends with him whether they come to Christ or not. And we are friends with faith. Can you see it? Is that something you'd love to be a part of? We're experiencing it already in some ways. You know, of the more than 50 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, they all paid prices that were dear to them. I was just trying to read some of the histories of them and, and for their pursuit of this ideal that they felt God had given them for who they wanted to be, this we vision that they had. One of them paid 10,000 pounds of his own money. And several others paid exorbitant sums like that. And I, I didn't have a chance. I wanted to go on the Internet and see if there's a place to figure out what 10,000 pounds back then would translate to now. But I'll, I'll bet it would be 30, 50, 100 million dollars of their own money. And they ended up dying poor. Another man fled his home shortly after his wife died and hid in caves in the forest until it was safe to come back and 
and Thomas Nelson, who signed the uh, Declaration of Independence at the Siege of Yorktown. He had his mansion in Yorktown, and, and General Cornwallis of the British Army decided to use his home as uh, his headquarters. And the legend has it, and nobody's been able to prove it for sure, but the legend has been told all the time since back in that day that that, uh, that Thomas Nelson went around offering five guineas to the first person with an artillery gun that would hit his house. And they destroyed his house. He gave so much of his fortune that he was never able to fully rebuild the house again in his life. Declarations, whether it be to follow Christ, to live the dream, to not be religious people, but followers of Christ and his example, glorifying and making great his grace and his love, his offer of relationship above differences. Declarations are something that costs us deeply. Declarations like that are something that, that create a solemn moment. And I want you to watch, watch this clip. It's a, it's a clip of John and Abigail Adams And it's taken from their letters back and forth to each other during the war. And, and the ending quote you're going to hear from John Adams was dated April 26, 1777. It, was, it wasn't when the battle was done. It wasn't when the victory was won. It wasn't when everything was perfect and, and they were assured of all these liberties of being in place. It was during the dark days of the battle when they had no idea whether they were going to win. And I think both of their voices speak something that's valuable to us today about our country and understanding what it was really founded on and why it became great and why God used us to spread his good news throughout the entire world. But I think it also has something to say to us today about our own faith. So go ahead and listen. My dearest friend, whether I stand high or low in the estimation of the world, my conscience is clear. I thank God I have you for a partner in all the joys and sorrows, all the prosperity and adversity of my life, to take a part with me in the struggle. Should I draw you the picture of my heart, you would know with what indescribable pleasure I have seen so many scores of years roll over our heads with an affection heightened and improved by time. Nor have the dreary years of absence in the smallest degree effaced from my mind the image of the dear untitled man to whom I gave my heart. You could not be, nor did I wish to see you, an inactive spectator. Now, posterity, you will never know how much it cost us to preserve your freedom. I hope that you will make a good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Two quotes from that. Life is not a spectator sport. Our faith is not a spectator sport. And it's not just about us individually. It's about we. 
and it takes a cost. Today we get to celebrate that cost and actually partake in that cost as we take communion together. We get to remember the example of Jesus that he gave us of coming to us with his grace, of even though we were fighting against him and fighting among each other, he still came to us to offer relationship above differences. To become our friend, he became like us, a human, touchable. He became our friend, even when we didn't believe, even when we didn't understand what he was all about. And what's even more amazing is today that he believes in us, he trusts us to be his body, his family, his army, his bride, his representation of him in this earth. Isn't that amazing? He believes in us and what he can do through us that much that he calls us those things and makes us his representation. Yet the celebration of communion doesn't stop there because it's also a declaration of our intent to sacrifice and dedicate our whole life to him, to take up our cross daily, to be completely dependent on him and none other. It's our intent to live life as we, not me, because he calls us into his body. And it's a reminder that he's already paid the price. He's already won the battle. And that we can live life individually and together knowing, absolutely confidently knowing every moment of our lives that He is with us and He has a plan for good for us and He is going to give us success in the end. How much different can we approach life when we approach it from that perspective? Not wondering, not, not wondering if we have to measure up, but knowing He's with us, knowing He's won the battle. The worship band is going to lead us in, in, in a song. I want you to just ponder those things for a minute and then take communion on your own as you feel you're ready to while we're singing. And when you're done, just join in singing. Would you join me in some of those declarations? The life is not, as a Christian, about morals. God's going to create morals in us, but that's a byproduct. It's about relationship. The church is not about being right, first and foremost, but about being grace-giving and kind. Until we learn that lesson, we'll be we'll be breaking relationships, we'll be breaking marriages, we'll be, we'll be changing churches, we'll be changing jobs. Oftentimes for the wrong reasons. We can have the kind of a place here that lives that out, that makes an amazing difference in our lives and the life of this community. And we may not be huge, but I was thinking at the end of the early service as the song was going, you know, these guys, these signers of the Declaration of Independence, one-third of the colonists were for it. One-third of the colonists were passive, didn't want anything to do with it, just didn't want anything to do with either side. One-third of them were for England. And these guys who signed this declaration saying, we're going to be 
this divinely called place that God can bless went up against the greatest military power in the world, the greatest navy, the greatest army of England. And because even in their constitution and even in all their thoughts of the declaration, even their understanding of what pursuit of happiness and liberty and all those things meant, it was always about we and not me. And if we can catch that, if we can catch the grace of God that He wants to pour out for us to achieve, we and not me, He's going to do amazing things through us because we become true friends and friends with faith. I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you came with prayer needs, I want to encourage you to grab a friend and have him pray for you. Because God has won the battle. He's with them. He can speak through them and He can move through them as good as He can move through anybody in this room. So grab a friend and have them pray for you. If you're here and you don't have a friend that you're comfortable grabbing with that, or you don't have a friend here, there'll be people available to pray if you have something you want to pray about at the end of the service. But let's go this week. Let's enjoy the 4th of July. Let's enjoy time with family. But let's think about the declarations of our country and the declarations that we are as a church, as followers of Christ. God bless. Have a great day.